This morning I want to consider a very popular phrase, what has been a very popular phrase among American believers for some time, the phrase, let go and let God. Now you know that it's not our practice here to take a phrase like that and begin to tear down or attack people or other believers or phrases or ideas such as that. So as we introduce that to you today, we say up front that this isn't in the sense of condemning or criticizing anyone. If anything, it's an opportunity for me to speak on God's sovereignty. Now, how many of you think that I look for each and every opportunity under the sun to speak on God's sovereignty? Nobody raises their hand. I'm seriously disappointed. (laughs) I know, I know. We're primitive Baptists, so we don't interact, right? Well, I look for any and every opportunity to speak on God's sovereignty in this world. And in our present day, I look for any and uh, every opportunity to speak on the trust that we should have in God. I appreciated so much in the opening prayer directly before our sermon, the plea for God to be with us and all the different issues and anxieties that are in the world. There are so many things in the world that can keep us absolutely concerned at any given moment that we desperately need reminding of God's oversight, His sovereignty, His love and His care for His people, and also the trust that we ought to have in Him. And so perhaps today this is an excuse or an opportunity to also speak on issues such as that. Well, as we introduce that to you today, letting go and Letting God, that's the title we put on it, and we put it with a question mark. Do we let go and let God? We want to consider, number one, is that particular verbiage biblical? And aside from that, more importantly, is the intended meaning biblical? And if it is, when does it apply? How many of you have seen that in a resurgence, I guess, that, that verbiage, that language over the past 18 months. I think that's something that we've, we've seen a lot online. As we think about if it's a biblical meaning, even if the verbiage is not biblical, the question that I want to leave in your mind as we come to the latter portion of today's message, if that's a biblical thing in its intent, the sincere meaning behind it, is there a better way for you and I to say it? I remind you of the book of Ecclesiastes in which the preacher sought out acceptable words. There are good ways to say true things, and there are perhaps less good ways to say true things. We want to, as we present God's Word to you, look for the apples of gold and pictures of silver. We want to frame it in such a way that is is beautiful and meaningful, but also as technically sound and articulate as it can be that God's people know the truth of any particular matter. As a word up front, popular Christian slogans, and you will find this as no surprise, are many times lacking. Popular Christian slogans are many times lacking. I'm tempted to do a series. I didn't announce a series. I said I'm tempted to do a series on popular Christian slogans and to weigh them in the balances of Scripture, to filter them through Scripture. I think that would be very beneficial at some point, maybe here or on the radio, to do a series on popular Christian slogans. Aside from this one, this one, of course, let go and let God is a very popular slogan. You have many, many slogans that you don't necessarily find in Scripture that we hear each and every day. One of them could be, ask the Lord into your heart. How many of you have heard that one? Maybe as a little kid, going to a different order of faith. I grew up going to a Southern Baptist church, and we went to Sunday school and vacation Bible school and pre-K and and five-year-old kindergarten, and that was a a common part of our our behavior, of our thought, of our uh, things that we heard and were taught. And there were prayers to attempt to pray Christ into your heart. But biblically speaking, your heart, before Christ comes into it is desperately wicked. Your mind is completely alienated from God so that you don't fear Him, you don't understand Him, you don't seek after Him, Romans chapter 3. You wouldn't ask Him into your heart when you were dead in sin if you had to. And the good news is, He doesn't need your permission to come into your heart. Jesus doesn't need our permission to do anything. 
when the time comes that he would quicken those that belong to him, there is no permission that is needed. He simply calls them from death and sends life in Christ like he raised Lazarus from the dead. But that's a popular slogan. It's a popular thing that we hear. How about another one? This one was, uh, this one was popular in the 90s. Some of you did not live through the 90s. Many of you did live through the 90s. Some of you were born in the 90s. What would Jesus do? That was a very popular slogan. I like that slogan. I think that's a good slogan. But we have to remember at times, Jesus would make a weapon and chase people out of the temple. And so what would Jesus do sometimes involves purging God's house from people who are destructive. Sometimes what would Jesus do involves standing up and giving a public sermon against your audience like he did the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Sometimes what would Jesus do was to tell a little trembling child of God that wept over her sins, thy sins be forgiven. Sometimes what would Jesus do include sending one away to go and sin no more after you've shared with them the message of grace. That's a good slogan. If it's from a certain point of view, you might say. How about another one? God will never put on you more than you can handle. How many of you have heard that one? That has two glaring problems with it. First of all, there are things that we experience that are common to man because of the sin of Adam. And it's not necessarily God putting anything on us. Sometimes we experience bad things because we put those things on ourselves. And at the same time, God will allow us to go through things that are more than we can handle for the purpose of our personal growth. You look at the life of Job, that was more than Job could handle, was it not? He lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his children. I don't know about you, but that's pretty much more than any of us could handle. And yet God suffered that to be because there was a spiritual war taking place that Job never knew between God and that wicked one. And so perhaps a a better way of phrasing that would be to just simply quote what Scripture says in Paul's writings to the Corinthians. God will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. God will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation, when the temptation appears, he will make a way to escape. That's the biblical way of saying that. As we think about Christian slogans... I guess there's no sense in a series now, right? We just kind of went through them all in a couple of minutes. Where should the Christian find his slogans? Rather than popular, thank you, rather than popular culture, rather than popular writings, the Christian should find his slogans in the Word of God. We're reading through Psalm 119 in our scripture reading. That psalm talks about God's children hiding the Scripture in their heart, that they might know how not to sin against Him. And so how the Christian finds his slogans is by reading the Word of God and putting it in his mind, putting it in his heart, and then from that point on, when a situation occurs, instead of relying on slogans that may or may not be true, he can simply speak the Word of God into the situation. And then you know if you're quoting the Word of God, if you're quoting the Word of God, What you are saying is true and sound and biblical, because it's thus saith the word of the Lord. If we stick with quoting Scripture and applying them in the correct context, which is equally as important as quoting Scripture to rightly apply it, we're safe. That's a word that I want you all to remember as we think about what we say. There are things in the world to say that are safe, and there are things that we could say that are unsafe. Safe. Safety. Now, again, as we begin to look at this particular phrase, let go and let God, the first thing that we want to do is consider the verbiage of the phrase, and then we want to consider the intended meaning. It's not usually my philosophy to see something on social media and then preach a sermon about that the very next week, but I saw this this week with relation to some things that were going on in the world, and it has not left me alone. Now, you know that we like to go through books of the Bible and preach expositions of entire books of the Bible. Wednesday night, we're going through all the minor prophets together. But sometimes a preacher sees something or he hears something, and it just will not leave him alone, and it has to become something that he shares with the church. And I trust, especially after the prayers and the song service and the choices of hymns this morning, that that's the will of the Lord for us today. 
So the first thing that we want to do is consider the phrase, let go and let God. Immediately, as we hear that phrase, a problem, a very obvious problem, is apparent to us. Letting go is something that is an okay thing to say, and as it relates to sin and our control over the situation, letting go is good and letting go is biblical. One of the most peaceful experiences that you will have in your life is when you look at the chaos in the world around you. You look at the pandemic, you look at the response, you look at the political uncertainty, you look at the violence, the wars, the rumors of war, the earthquakes, the fires, the floods, and the storms. We had all of that this week. You might be thinking, well, yeah, the past two years. No, we had all that this week. I guess today's a new week, so we had it all last week. You just wonder, what does a day bring? Jesus said in Matthew that sufficient under the day thereof, or is the evil thereof, sufficient under the day is the evil thereof. And that simply means that there are enough negative things in a day to worry about that you don't need to worry about tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. And you look back at the past week and you know, it's like we're spinning a, a daytime game show wheel and we're just wondering which calamity it's going to land on. Today, will it be a terrorist insurgency? Spin the wheel. Will it be a new variant of a pandemic that makes people sick? Spin the wheel. Will it be another political scandal? Spin the wheel. We never know. We feel so much to be along for the ride. You will have peace in your life when you realize that you should not worry about things over which you have no control. Sonny Pyle said that in a sermon 18 years ago, and it stuck with me. He said, I never worry about things over the which I have no control. And we do every day. We're experts about it. We spend more time a day reading other people's opinions and arguing with them about such on social media than we do reading the Word of God or hanging out with our spouse. We're inundated and obsessed with it. It has completely saturated us. Letting go at this point of a lot of those concerns and obsessions would be a healthy thing that would bring you a peace that passeth all understanding. Letting go is good. But let's look at the second part of that phrase. What might we find a problem with? And let God. Now, to someone who understands what the Word of God says about the nature of God, the power of God, the sovereignty of God... The concept of letting God to you is probably the equivalent of nails on a chalkboard. Who can let God do anything? Now, understand if you're using a KJV this morning, sometimes, many times, the word let in the KJV means to hinder. So it basically means the opposite that we use it today in some passages. When Paul wrote about the man of sin and the mystery of iniquity, the statement, he that letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And the word let there actually means restraints. And so in the KJV, sometimes the word let means to restrain, to hinder, to hold back. But in our contemporary English, let means to allow or to permit. Can a human being allow God to do anything that God wants to do. No, not at all. We have no power to allow God to let God do anything. And so that language, well, it causes us to be uncomfortable with this entire phrase. Now, we're going to consider the intended meaning in just a moment and how the intended meaning is fine, but we're going to give you some better ways to say it as we bring our thoughts today to a close. But we want to dig into this concept of letting God, let God. Can we as humans let God do anything? Do you think God needs permission? Do you think he needed permission to create the universe, the universe just sitting there not existing? God says, I'd really like to make the universe, but I don't know if they would let me or not. And then, you know, he asks and the universe that doesn't yet exist gives him the ability, the right, the privilege, and then he creates the universe? No, that'd be nonsense, wouldn't it? 
How about Lazarus when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus? An example we mentioned just a moment ago. He comes to the tomb. Lazarus has been dead some four days. Behold, he stinks. He's already decomposing. Do you think when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, that Lazarus says, you know, I've thought this through, and I really agree with you. I'm going to let you raise me again from the dead. Would that make any sense at all? No. God doesn't need Lazarus' permission to raise him from the dead. God doesn't need my permission to call me to preach, to get me out of the bed in the morning, or to take me home to be with Christ this afternoon. God doesn't need my permission. God doesn't need me to allow him. God simply works his will. He does what he wants to do. And so the concept of letting God we find fault with because God is not permitted to do anything. God does what God wants. Anytime He wants, whenever He wants, God does exactly what is His will. A few scriptures that I want to share with you along those lines. The first is in the book of Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4 is interesting to briefly summarize for you what's happening. We'll spend more time on this passage than the other ones that we want to share with you along this point. In Daniel 4, the most powerful man in the world has been humbled. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. You remember on Wednesday nights we've been studying the minor prophets together. God raises up Nebuchadnezzar. He raises up the Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire. They sweep through the land. They overthrow the Assyrians, they conquer the Assyrians, they take all the land that the Assyrians had conquered, and they begin expanding the empire even more. There are portions of land that Assyria could not conquest, such as Judah and Jerusalem, that Babylon takes because God had delivered Jerusalem into the hand of Babylon for their sins. Nebuchadnezzar is a man that was raised up by God for that purpose in the world at that moment. Nebuchadnezzar walks out and he's doing what a lot of our politicians do. He sees everything in front of him and he begins to boast and to brag, is not this great Babylon that I have built? Look at chapter 4 and... Verse 29, at the end of the 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? This guy's got an ego. Now, this can affect all of us. This can affect parents. Oh, haven't I done such a good job raising my children? Let me tell you what, if you raise successful kids, you need to thank God because... There are a billion mistakes that he overruled to get you to that place. No parent raises successful kids because they knew what they were doing. Now, some parents know more of what they're doing than others. It's not what I'm saying. But we are all testimonies of the grace of God. You think Vaughn and Linda Winslet were just such extraordinary parents that they raised two preachers. I've heard people say that. Your parents, your daddy really must have known. Let me tell you what. In eighth grade, my dad was buying me tobacco saying, don't tell your mom, okay? Rachel just gave me the shh. Okay. We were taught to fight. We were taught to chew tobacco and spit and curse our enemies, to quote Conan the Barbarian, to crush our enemies, send them driven before us, and hear the lamentation of their women. That's what it's like getting raised by Dexter Winslet. And he will tell you, by the grace of God and that little five-foot-tall woman that is my mother, we turned out the way that we did, but they didn't call us to preach. That's all God. That's all God. If If you raise children that grow up to be good, godly pillars in the community and in the church, don't think, well, this is all my doing. I really know what I'm doing because the truth be told, none of us know what we're doing. Moving on. Pastors can fall victim to this. You know, this church is doubled and doubled again. You know what? It did that if it did that because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's His gospel, it's His church, it's His bride, it's His people. And the 
Lord added daily such as should be saved. Acts chapter 2. If a church thrives in the world, yeah, there are things that we need to do so that we're not stifling that in our church culture. But if a church is thriving, you give God all the glory and all the praise. I promise you, none of us have this figured out as pastors. If there's anything, I've said this about four billion times since March 2020, if there's anything that the recent history has taught us is that none of us have any idea what we're doing. We're literally latched hold at the hem of his garment, and he's going 100 miles an hour, and we're clinging on for dear life. I mean, we're on the Atlanta scream machine, and we're just hanging on. It's like the Georgia Cyclone. Until I hadn't been to Six Flags in a long time, right? I don't even know if those are still there. And when people say, what do you like to do for fun? Tempting God to kill me on a roller coaster is not on the list. Pastors can fall victim to that. Politicians thrive in it. The bragging, the boasting, the arrogance, the ego... Is not this what I have done? Think about it. When was the last time a politician said, I want to lead us to repent. I want us to give God the glory. I want us to be a godly nation. And if there's any good thing that happens, well, the Lord was just good to me. That's the last thing you hear from any politician of any political party in any country. It's all exactly what Nebuchadnezzar says. Is not this great Babylon which I have built? Well, when he made that statement, words fell from heaven. God says that you'll be driven away. You'll lose your mind. Your fingernails are going to grow out like talons. Your hair's going to grow out like bird feathers. You're going to crawl around on the ground and eat grass like an ox. And for seven seasons, this is going to befall you. And then your mind is going to come back to you. So all of this befalls Nebuchadnezzar the way it was spoken. Verse 33, the same hour it was fulfilled. And the whole reason behind this is that God gives the kingdom of men to whomsoever he will, verse 32. Now, I'm not telling you that anytime somebody holds a political office that God predestinated before the foundation of the world, that that dude should be mayor of that town at that time in human history. That's not what I'm saying. There are times in the Old Testament when Israel appointed kings, but not by God. Hosea talks about that. They've appointed kings, but not by me. They were rebellious to whom God would have in authority. But as a principle, God raises men up. God raises nations up. God sets men down. God sets nations down because God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Memorize that statement. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The most powerful man in the world was just humbled by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Who does Nebuchadnezzar answer to? He answers to God. You see, he's a ruler. The powers that be are ordained of God, and Romans 13 calls them the ministers of God. That means that they are accountable to God in the same way that you and I are accountable to God, that me as a minister, that I am accountable to God, rulers are accountable to God. Side point, when you have an outright wretch of a leader that does everything contrary to the Word of God, and you wonder... When is this man going to face what he deserves to face over this issue? You know who he's accountable to? Not me. Oh, no. Someone far more scary than me. He's accountable to God. And God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he'll also reap. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And that gives the child of God comfort when they live in a world with a corrupt set of rulers over them, doesn't it? I might not can do anything about it, but the Lord can, and not only the Lord can, the Lord will. He will do something about it because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He humbles Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's mind comes back to him. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes. Now think about it. This is a pagan king. The Nebuchadnezzar in Nebuchadnezzar literally stands for Nebo, a Babylonian deity. He's named after an idol. And apparently, he thought so high of himself that he would make others worship an image made after him. This man is a 
at one time in his life, a wicked, pagan idolater. And yet God humbles him. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, including Nebuchadnezzar, that all the inhabitants of the earth looked at and feared. He's the greatest man alive. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Now, you and I might know that from a theological perspective. We might know it because the Word of God has taught it to us. I think we know it to some degree in our heart, but Nebuchadnezzar learned that through the school of hard knocks because he had all the military might, all the wealth and all the political power that the world has to offer. And he came face to face with the king of kings, as it were, and the king of kings won the battle, took his mind from him, drove him away from men, made him live as an insane person for a season of time. And when he was restored, he gives one of the most vivid, powerful, statements affirming God's sovereignty that's found in the Word of God. God does what God wants. And so this statement, let God, I hope when you hear that, that you're uncomfortable with it because it doesn't jive, as it were, it doesn't compute with what the Word of God expresses about the nature of God, the reign of God, the sovereignty of God. Notice a few other passages. Psalm 115 and verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Do you think God needs to be allowed to do anything in the world? He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. At all times, God does what God wants. Now, you and I say praise God and amen for that because it was God's will to save you from your sins. And if it's God's will to save me from my sins, and He's in the heavens, and He's done whatsoever He has pleased, I don't have to worry about dying today and going to hell if I know Jesus because the Lord Jesus Christ has saved me from my sins. It was His will to do so, and He will do all His pleasure. Y'all don't be sleepy today. Somebody should have amen that. Amen. All right now. He's done whatsoever he is pleased. Isaiah 46, beautiful passage of Scripture. This run of chapters in Isaiah, around Isaiah 46, talks so much about God versus the idols because Israel is guilty of idolatry, Judah is guilty of idolatry. Babylon is guilty of idolatry, the Assyrians are guilty of idolatry. And God contrasts himself with the idols. Chapter 46 and verse 1, Baal boweth down. That's a name of a pagan deity. Nebo, the root of Nebuchadnezzar, stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy laden, heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They create these giant idols and the beasts of burden have to pull them around everywhere that they go. They stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Now he begins to contrast himself. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly and carried from the womb. Did you notice the contrast between the idols and God? Men invent idols that they carry... God calls people into His presence that He carries. And notice the analogy there of birth. I have born, you've been born by me from the belly. And we know so much more about that in the New Testament. We are born of God. Now, as a nation, they had been born of Him, as it were. But we have been, through the Holy Spirit, quickened when we were dead in sins. We are born of the Spirit of God. The new birth is not 
is not an exclusively New Testament concept. When Jesus talked to, I keep trying to say Nebuchadnezzar. What's the man's name? Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, and Nicodemus says, How can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus said, Are you a master in Israel and knoweth not these things? You claim to be a teacher and a leader and you don't even know about the new birth? No, that exists in the Old Testament as well. But God describes his people as people who are born from the womb, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he. Even to whore hairs, gray hairs, will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. You've got the idols that men carry, and you've got the people that belong to God that God carries. You see the contrast, the juxtaposition between the idols and the true God? One is carried by men, the other carries men. We always need to remember as the church of the Lord Jesus that we don't carry Jesus, Jesus carries us. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith. And he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place. They cry unto him and he can't save. But remember this. Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, a man that executeth my counsel from a far country. That's Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. And eventually Cyrus, God does this. He calls a man to fulfill his purposes and eventually... We find a great fulfillment in many of the prophecies of Cyrus of Persia in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. These men, in some ways, were typical foreshadowing the coming of the Lord. I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Does that sound like we let God do anything? No, not at all. Not at all. Ephesians chapter 1, let me give you one more, because we've got to move. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will." That's not a statement of fatalism, it's a statement, number one, of salvation, and number two, of governance. We've said it a thousand times that God either causes things or he suffers slash permits them in this world. But the deist idea, the deist notion that, well, these things God really just didn't have any ability, or he just couldn't, or we don't really know. Now, let me tell you, that's not the God of this book. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Again, not fatalism, but governance, particularly as it applies to salvation because we've been predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. So, then, letting God. The intended meaning behind that is not one that we would scrutinize, because the intended meaning behind that is beautiful and true. When Christians in America say, let go and let God, do they really think that they have the power and ability in their heart of hearts to stop God when he wants to do something? Some of them may, but most of them don't mean that. What do they mean by that? They mean that we simply need to trust God and to rely on God and to beg God and to count on him and his intercession in the situation. Is that a good statement? Absolutely. When there's trouble in your life and you can do nothing about it, you need to let go of the reins of control and trust in God. You know, you could make that a biblical phrase by simply saying, let go and trust God, right? I guess it doesn't have the same ring to it as let go, let God. But we know, I think now beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Letting God is not the best phrase because of God's sovereignty. That's simply not a biblical phrase. It's not a biblical phrase. 
By the way, I hope nobody's used that phrase here any time in the last year because I don't want you to think I saw you say it and I didn't see anybody say it that goes here. So please don't think. If you said that, I didn't know you said that, so don't get mad at me. That happens sometimes, you know. He's talking to me. I don't know you said that. I didn't know you said that. Don't get mad at me. I love you. Now, as we think about that statement, I want to give you a little bit of caution before rebuking or fighting over a phrase, it's, to know what a, it's helpful to know what a person actually means. Knowing that they mean let go and let God simply means to relinquish in your mind the control over a situation and trust in Him, wait for Him, count on Him, pray to Him, lean on Him. Those are all biblical statements. Knowing that they mean that, then I don't want to be the cage stage guy in the room that begins to do the actually thing. You, you know the, the meme? Any of you seen the actually meme? You know, Jesse's laughing because he knows what it is. But it, it's thrown out when someone's kind of the know-it-all that corrects everybody else online. It's kind of like, actually. You don't want to be that guy. Don't be the actually guy. Isaiah twenty nine nineteen cautions us against making a brother an offender for a word. We don't want to be chronic know-it-all nitpickers that every time something's said that maybe the intent is wholesome, but the verbiage isn't quite accurate, that we begin to attack people and fight with people and skin people. Remember James' exhortation to us, his wisdom, to be swift to hear and slow to speak. Now, this is a little bit of a pun, but that is easier said than done. Swift to hear, slow to speak. Swift to hear, slow to speak. What most people mean by that is that we need to wait and to trust in God. Is it good to wait on God and to trust in God? Absolutely. It's good to wait and to trust in God. Now, a bit of a caveat before we look at biblical alternatives to this particular phrase. There are moments of waiting and trusting, sure, but there are also many moments of actions in the life of a child of God. Israel was to wait and to trust, but they were also to take up arms and invade Canaan's land. You know, had they not invaded, they'd still be wandering around the wilderness of sin. Which sin there doesn't mean sin is in transgression, but sin is in Sinai. They would still be wandering around the wilderness around Mount Sinai because to take Canaan's land, they had to take Canaan's land. When they thought they couldn't take Canaan's land because they were afraid... God rebukes them, then they say, fine, we'll go take it. And then God says, no, it's too late. I'm not going to let you have it. They go and try to take it. They get slaughtered. And God makes them spend 40 years in the wilderness where everyone who was over 20 years of age who didn't believe except Caleb and Joshua died in the wilderness before going in. Those that were 20 and under got to go in. Joshua and Caleb, the old heads, they had confidence and faith in God. They got to go in. And as 80-year-old men, they conquered their mountains. And they went and they took their inheritance. There were battles that had to be fought. Let go and trust God doesn't mean that we simply do nothing. If you don't have a job and you're trying to provide, and the bills begin to stack up, and you're shopping, or you need to be shopping for a job, what sense would it make for someone to come up and just say, well, you know, let go and, and let God? Well, it's not going to do me a whole lot of good if I don't go out and apply for a job, right? So I've got to go out and apply and then let go and then trust and wait on God. So this can apply to our parenting. It can apply to our church lives. It can apply to evangelism. Do you know 86% of people that ever come to a church and join were invited by people who sit in the pew? Church growth in America is a lot of that let go and let God stuff. Primitive Baptists in the 1950s embraced a let go and let God philosophy on evangelism. If God wants them here, he'll get them here. Apparently he didn't want them there because nobody came and nobody joined. And then churches started dying. We wait on him, we count on him, we depend on him, we trust in him. We are empowered by him, but we go and we do. We go, we preach, we share, we disciple, we are blessed by God through preaching to convert those that He has quickened. Caveat. 
many times as we wait, we also work. So biblical alternatives to this statement, waiting on the Lord. So many verses use the verbiage, wait on the Lord. Instead of saying, let go, let God, let go and wait on God. I'll give you three of them, three different passages. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 22 speaks about when enemies attack you. How many times have you been attacked by somebody, either by the things that they said or the things that they've done? This proverb talks about waiting on the Lord instead of taking vengeance, instead of lashing out on your own. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and he shall save thee. Recompensing evil places this in the context of dealing with an enemy. In that day, many times their enemies literally took up a sword against them. You have Philistines, you have murderers and robbers and criminals and all sorts of people that would prey on others. Say not, say not thou, I will recompense evil. That means we don't go after vengeance. To whom does vengeance belong? Vengeance belongeth unto the Lord, I will repay. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and he shall what? He shall save thee. Now this isn't a heaven text. This is a dealing with people who want to kill you text. That's not the most theological way to say it, but I think you understand what I mean. Saving here has reference to the enemies that would affront you. One of the hymns that we sing is based on the song, I shall call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. And that's a direct quote from the Psalms. I will wait on the Lord and he will save me. Wait on the Lord and he shall save thee. Psalm 27. Verse 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Does your heart need strengthened right now? With all the things in your own personal life and in the community and in the country and in the world, does your heart need strengthened right now? Wait on the Lord, and he will strengthen your heart. You know, the context of this Go back and read the first five verses or so. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength, the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came up upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. The context is when your enemies attack. And David says, I will wait, I will trust, and my heart shall be strengthened in waiting. That's really what people mean when they say let go and let God. But what I want you to say is let go and wait on God. Let go and wait on God. Wait on the Lord. Now, just giving you three, if you look up in a concordance, wait and Lord, if you take your Bible software or a blue letter Bible or any sort of of digital software you want to use, just look up the words wait and God, wait and Lord, and see all the many times that Scripture presents this concept to us. God's people are those that wait on the Lord. There are passages that talk about it from the other perspective, that those that wait on the Lord shall not be ashamed. And so we are the people who wait on the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Rest on the Lord. Wait patiently for him. We wait on him. Verse 9, Evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 34, Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Now remember that this is talking about a physical nation, Israel, that dealt with physical enemies and physical battles. But this point is made over and over. And these all three that I've shared with you are Psalms of David. Who knew more about that than David? Who waited on the Lord in his strength as he went up against a lion and a bear and a giant and Saul, king of Israel, who was out of his mind and jealousy against David because the women said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. 
<clears throat> there were times when Saul was so angry at David, when David played the harp, he took a javelin. If you watch that in the Olympics, it's so very neat. They sling this javelin. Some of these women doing the female Olympic javelin stuff, I'm like, Lord, don't let, ever let Rachel see this. I won't be able to make it out of the house if she grabs one of these things. But Saul grabs the javelin and he tries to impale David a number of times. David waited patiently over and over and over. The Philistines, insurrection in his own family. David knew what he was talking about when he talked about waiting on the Lord. Psalm 37 is one that's been very precious to me at times of opposition and trouble when people would attack me because it talks about how they draw the sword on you and they end up falling on it themselves. Their devices against you will be their own destruction. And I've seen that so many times. They've bent their bow to cast down the poor, to slay such as are upright, but the sword shall enter into their own heart, their bows shall be broken. Verses 14 and 15. But three times in this passage, we read the exhortation to wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord in times of adversity is a good thing. Number two, biblical alternatives to let go and let God. Trust in the Lord. Now, if I were to ask you if you were to guess where I would go, how many of you would say Proverbs 3, five? If you know Proverbs 3.5, as we think about trusting in the Lord, this is... The number one passage. It says so much. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Is that not literally saying what most people mean when they say, let go? Lean not unto thine own understanding, and the let God part that we don't prefer the verbiage of? Trust in the Lord. With all thine heart. Maybe as a phrase, instead of that slogan, we simply say Proverbs 3 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. When times are scary, we continue to trust his wisdom, his mercy, his grace, his character, and especially his word. His word is a lamp unto our feet, a guide, a light unto our paths. In fact, when we trust in Him with all our heart and we lean not unto our own understanding and we acknowledge Him in all of our ways, He actually directs our paths. He will direct our paths. <clears throat> Number three, lastly, Biblical alternatives to letting go and letting God, as it were. We wait on the Lord. We trust in the Lord. Number three, and this is the most difficult out of them all, we need to submit to the Lord. Submitting to the will of the Lord is something that is very difficult to do because we are stubborn we are stiff-necked. We have our own ideas for our lives. You, you look back, how many of you thought that you'd be where you are at this phase in your life based upon your plans? None of us are where we thought we'd be, but look at where God has led us. Thus far the Lord has led me on. Thus far His power has pro prolonged my day. Would you not concede that what He had in store for you is better than what you had in store for yourself from His perspective and in a spiritual way? <coughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, as we pray, we are to concede in prayer, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's number one, a statement that whatever is God's will, that's what we want to happen. And that's what we submit to. Number two, that's asking God that people would obey him in the world the way his angels obey him in glory. His angels perfectly obey him. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. But in our prayer life, because this is in the midst of the model prayer, we concede, we are taught to concede, thy will be done. Meaning that we should have a greater concern and desire for the will of God executed in our lives than we do our own will. Now, I'm thankful to know that when a man's ways please the Lord, he gives them the desires of his heart. He makes his enemies to be at peace with him, etc. This isn't robotic puppetry, 
puppets on a string fatalism. Remember, God made us in his own image, which includes a will. And by the way, though God always does his will, we don't always do God's will. You see, there's a prescriptive will of God. God says, do this, do not do that. And we're guilty of violating that all the time. A great example of that from Scripture to the Thessalonians, Paul says that it's the will of God, even your sanctification, to abstain from fornication. To the Corinthians, he says, it's commonly reported that there's fornication among you. It's God's will that we abstain from sin, and yet we sin. We don't always do God's will, but God always does God's will. We submit to him. We have a mind to submit to whatever it is that is his will in the world. As we let go, as it were, we wait, we trust, and we submit. James says in James chapter 4, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. This is talking about people who say, we are going to do X, Y, Z in our future. James would call that boasting. Whereas you know not what tomorrow shall bring, what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is what? Evil. We ought to say, if the Lord will. What is that? That's an expression of submission to the will of God. And so I hope that our thoughts today have been instructive to us. Can we let go? Yeah, we should. Can we let God? Not on your life. But we can wait on Him. We can trust in Him. And we can be submissive to His will. And that's really what people mean when they make that statement. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and, Lord, we let go of our control. We let go of our... What control? We let go of the thought that we hold the reins and we steer and that this is our world and that this is our community and our country and that we have the final say in all that we do in this world or in our destinies in glory with your Son. We know, Father, that you are our shepherd. You lead us. You have a will for our lives. We know, Lord, that You have borne us from the belly, as it were, as we read in that metaphor in Isaiah. We know that you've carried us through this life. And, Lord, we just concede how much better it is, how much better we are being in a place where you've placed us rather than being in a place where we've placed ourselves. Father, help us to be obedient to your commands, your prescriptive will in this world. Help us to understand that your agenda in this world, your prerogatives are greater than ours and come before ours. Help us to understand that we can't let you do anything, nor can we make you do anything. But, Father, we can wait. Teach us to wait. We can trust. Teach us to trust. And we can submit to your will. Oh, Father, help us to submit to your will. Forgive us of all of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. And we say together, amen.